0: chumbacasino.com Jumba. no purchase necessary. Prohibited by law. 18 plus. terms and conditions apply See website for details hi I'm Neil and I'm Ken and we are from the Triviality Podcast a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world plus tons of extra themed episodes if you want to improve your trivia game or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong then we're the show for you find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps but you know that because you're already listening to a podcast
1: people were killing their babies that was the first problem in early 19th century vienna times were tough for the poor and times were especially tough for poor women the stigma around unwed motherhood was deep but the agency of poor women to avoid it was shallow there was no abortion. No birth control. So, people were killing their babies. Or abandoning them in the streets, at orphanages, at courthouses and front doors. This disturbed the people of Vienna. And so the government concocted a solution. Not the most progressive solution you could imagine. Like, say, taking care of the aforementioned social stigma. Or developing contraceptive techniques. Or empowering women economically and politically. But still, it was better than nothing obstetrics. Before the 1820s, nearly all births happened at home, either with the aid of family members or a midwife or alone. That meant there were a lot of cases in which infanticide or abandonment could go unnoticed or unnoted. If they could move childbirth into a formal, professional, clinical setting, the thought was that they could put a stop to all the baby murder, the Vienna General Hospital opened two free birth clinics in the city, one right next to the other. The lure was less that the birthing was free, giving birth was free in your bathtub too, and more that any baby birthed within the clinics was entitled to a slew of free medical care thereafter. Diapers, medicine, checkups, even food and clothing. It was a strong and powerful incentive. By the 1840s, Childbirth among the Viennese poor was transformed. Hospitals and clinics replaced bedrooms and bathtubs. Family and midwives were replaced by nurses and doctors. And dead babies were replaced, too. By dead mothers. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Reflex. Clinic one and clinic two. They were run with dual purposes in mind, help safely deliver babies for the poor, yes, but they were also educational facilities, home to doctors and midwives in training. The two clinics didn't run simultaneously. They switched off. Clinic one the first day, clinic two the second, clinic one the third, and so on. The poor expectant mothers of Vienna were keenly aware of this pattern By 1847, they were doing whatever they could to avoid Clinic 1. They would hold off until late in their labor, if need be, to get into Clinic 2. If that didn't work, they would beg staff at Clinic 1 to please let them be admitted to 2 instead. When that failed, some women would walk out and give birth in the alley behind the hospital. Because Clinic 1 had a reputation as a death chamber for mothers. Hospital administration considered this a superstition, the foolishness of the underclass. But they were powerless to persuade the masses. There was one man who took a different tack. Ignis Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician, had been appointed to what basically amounted to the position of chief resident in 1846, and he alone thought the desperation of women looking to avoid Clinic One deserved a closer look. He was especially struck by the women who were choosing to give birth on the streets. What superstition could be so strong as to create such recklessness? How bad would things have to be in the clinic to move women into the filthy, dank alleyways of 19th century Europe? So he did something that might seem obvious today, but that didn't even register to the other doctors of his time. He looked at the data. What Semmelweis found shocked him to his core. Childbirth is always a risky proposition. In America today, roughly 17 out of 100,000 births result in the death of the mother. That might not sound like a big number, but it's a lot bigger than, say, Poland or Finland, where the rate is more like 3 per 100,000, five times less than the American one. Still, modern American obstetrics are a great deal better than those of the 19th century. Nowadays, the greatest risks to mothers in childbirth are hemorrhage and eclampsia, which is to say internal bleeding and high blood pressure. But back in Semmelweis's day, the main threat was puerperal sepsis, or childbed fever. Not long after giving birth, new mothers would be taken by an intense fever and inflammation of the uterus. This inflammation spread throughout the body, inflaming the lungs, the heart, the brain, and finally killing the victim. Keep in mind. We're in 1847 here, so no one knows that bacteria and viruses exist. Medical science is still centered on fallacious theories like humors, which we talked about back in season one, and miasmas, which we'll get around to talking about sooner or later. Therefore, no one knew what caused childbed fever. Many obstetricians thought it was dietary, somehow, or even a nervous condition. Some thought it had to do with contagious air wafting into the mother's lungs. Semmelweis didn't know what caused childbed fever, either. Although it seems he didn't buy into those ideas. What he did know, after looking at the clinic records, was that the women begging to avoid clinic one were right.
0: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over a 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
1: In Clinic 2, between 1 and 2% of mothers were dying of childbed fever. In Clinic 1 the rate was higher, much higher, nine times higher, 18%. Nearly two out of every 10 women admitted to clinic one didn't come out. But how could that be? What could possibly explain such a stark and horrific difference? Semmelweis was distraught depressed. He said that life didn't seem worth living as long as he presided over so much unnecessary death. He was determined to get to the bottom of the mystery and solve it once and for all. Fastidiously, comprehensively, Semmelweis began compiling and testing hypotheses. 1. Overcrowding? No. It was Clinic 2 that was the more crowded, by a long shot. Remember, People were doing whatever they could to avoid Clinic 1, so it was positively empty by comparison. And as many of those avoiding it as could made their way to Clinic 2 instead. Scratch overcrowding. Two. Ventilation. One of the leading ideas about disease at the time had to do with the idea that some air was just contagiously unhealthy. So the notion that there was something floating through Clinic 1 was a natural hypothesis to Semmelweis. But no, the two clinics had virtually identical ventilation systems and the air running through one was not appreciably different than that in two. What about technique? When looking at the actual procedural differences between the two clinics, Semmelweis seemed to come across something important. In clinic one, mothers were instructed to lay on their backs, but in clinic two, they were told to lay on their sides. Semmelweis quickly ordered clinic one to change their procedure to match the other. And no change. Procedure wasn't the issue either. Semmelweis was running out of obvious discrepancies between the two wards. Well, not quite. There was one big discrepancy that he knew from the beginning. He just wasn't sure why it should matter. See, Clinic 1 was staffed by doctors-in-training, medical students, while Clinic 2 Was staffed with students of midwifery. Ah, yes, you say, midwives. That's the ticket. Traditional midwives must have provided better care than the heartless clinical physicians. But Semmelweis ruled this out too. He compared the rates of peripheral sepsis in those attended to by midwives with the rates among mothers who gave birth at home without care, and they were virtually identical, if anything. Those being tended to by midwives in the clinic were worse off. It wasn't anything that the midwives were doing right. It had to be something that the doctors were doing wrong. But he was out of possibilities. The care and procedure between the two clinics were almost the same in the first place, and over the course of a few months, Semmelweis had done everything he could to iron out all differences and make Clinic 1 an exact procedural duplicate of Clinic 2. Still, the deaths continued. Semmelweis was defeated. Distraught, depressed. He took holiday and left Vienna in March 1847, unsure of whether he could go on performing his duties as doctor as long as those duties meant the insuppressible incidental deaths of young mothers. He hunkered down for three weeks in Venice, trying to put the daily tragedy that awaited his return out of mind. He got back on March 20th and was greeted by even more depressing news. During his vacation, his good friend and fellow obstetrician Jacob Kolechka had died. Kolechka was a stark contrast to Semmelweis. He was the quintessential OBGYN of the time. Disdainful of the common people, he cleaved hard to the idea that the stink about Clinic One was mere underclass superstition. He went further than that, though. He defended himself and his fellow physicians at the cost of the midwives. The year before his death, 1846, He gave a speech, in which he accused midwives of regularly pulling off the arms or legs of babies in delivery, or even popping off their heads in their impatience and inexpertise. Still, he and Semmelweis were fast friends, and the already perturbed Semmelweis was driven even further down by his death. If he hadn't caught on already, Semmelweis was not a guy to go to the swooning couch when faced with trouble. He wanted to know, to understand, to solve problems so met with the sad news of his friend's untimely demise he had only one thing to say can i see his medical files kolechka had been performing an autopsy with some of his medical students when one butterfingered protege nicked him with a knife in the finger it wasn't a major wound but the knife in question had just moments before been cutting through the dead flesh of their practice corpse Soon after, Kolechka fell sick. He was taken by fever, inflammation. The inflammation spread to his lungs, his heart, his brain. Before, finally, it killed him. Semmelweis was dumbfounded. He knew almost instantly what had killed Kolechka. Childbed fever. And by the same token, he knew what was killing his patients. The doctors in Clinic 1 had nearly the same procedures as the midwives in Clinic 2, yes. But there was one thing the doctors did that the midwives did not. Autopsies. Early in the mornings, before the clinic opened, the medical students of Clinic 1 would descend into the morgue to practice anatomy and receive training on the recently deceased cadavers of the hospital. Then they would go straight up to the clinics and begin delivering babies. Again, remember... 1847. No one knows about bacteria. No one knows about viruses. Most believe illness is to do with humors or miasmas. Most people believe childbed fever is the result of diet or nervous pressure. But by May, Zemelweiss had put it together. He didn't know why it would work, or how it would work. But he knew he could put a stop to the spread of what people were now calling doctor's plague, With a simple, three-word directive. Wash. Your. Hands. Because they didn't see. Several mornings a week, the doctors of the clinic would go and dissect gangrenous corpses and then jaunt on up to deliver babies, no steps in between. No gloves, no washing, no nothing. Infection. Being transferred from dead flesh to living mother via a doctor's hands was not something the clinicians could even conceive of. But Semmelweis had a strong hunch that it must be that. So in mid-May, he instituted the new policy. Before taking patients in the clinic, each doctor and medical students was to wash their hands with chlorinated lime. In April, the maternal mortality rate was 18.3%. In June... 2.2 and those results became typical in clinic one within the next year there were three months in which not a single case of childbed fever issued from the clinic a result entirely unheard of in the years before the hand washing initiative i know i know it's really hard to put yourself in a mindset where it would have possibly been okay to have doctors not washing their hands It's difficult to see this story as being about the assiduous genius of Semmelweis rather than the dumbfounding grossness of everyone before him. What could be more obvious than washing your hands? But remember, Semmelweis didn't understand how it worked either. He theorized there were, quote, cadaverous particles that were responsible for childbed fever, but he couldn't explain what they were or how they worked. He chose chlorinated lime, which is to say bleach, for hand-washing, not because he knew of its disinfectant qualities, but because it eliminated the scent of the gore. If he'd chosen lilac instead, his washing regimen would have failed and he'd have been back to the drawing board again. What's astounding about Semmelweis isn't that he figured out the mechanism of disease, because he didn't. The astounding thing is that he followed the evidence in spite of his lack of understanding. And you say, well, sure. He went from nearly 20% of mothers dying to nearly none. Anyone would believe he was right faced with that evidence. But here's the thing. Anyone didn't. Semmelweis' students were amazed by the change, and they began spreading the word person-to-person, in print, in lectures, any way they could. And they were scoffed at. The medical establishment, faced with the crucial and incontrovertible statistics of Semmelweis's clinic, said, nah, no way. The doctors of the world failed to believe Semmelweis for a variety of reasons. Some English doctors were already washing their hands, although not for quite the same reasons or in quite the same ways, so they thought there was nothing new under the sun. Some doctors couldn't get over the lack of explanation offered by Semmelweis as to why handwashing should work. Some were just upset that this Hungarian Jewish doctor working in a free clinic would have the gall to call their hands dirty. Seriously, doctors were gentlemen, and to impugn a gentleman by calling him unclean was a monocle-dropping offense. But mostly, the medical establishment didn't believe Semmelweis because they simply had no conception of disease and infection working this way. And that's for deeper reasons, even than we've so far dug. See, it's not just that they believed in miasmas and humors, or that they didn't know what bacteria or viruses were. It was worse than that. They didn't realize there were diseases in anything like the way we know now at all. There was no pathology, only idiopathy. Here, let me explain. You go to work grab your coffee mug, fill it up, and walk over to your desk. Next to you is Larry. You hate Larry. Everybody hates Larry. And today, Larry has a cold. Because Larry is a disgusting slob, who makes it a point to tell you about his Klingon language sticks cover band, no less, he's just sneezing of a storm left, right, and center. And while you're doing your best to avoid eye contact, lest you inadvertently signal to him that you'd like to hear more about the current meta in Fortnite, he manages to aerosolize his infected snot right into your coffee mug (coughs) from which you take a big old sip unawares a couple of days later you're suddenly the one with the cold And you manage to pass it to your kid, who passes it to ten of her thirty-five classmates. and Thirty-five classmates? What's going on with the overcrowding in this district? And one of them passes it to the music instructor, and it's time for the school-wide recorder unit, so you know how those slobbery, screeching pipes are going to help, until finally the damn virus manages to burn itself out, somewhere in... May. (laughs) When this happens... You understand the mechanics of it pretty well. The virus is spread in the aerosolized mucus of the sneezes, or from nose to hand to door handle to hand to mouth, whatever. Even if you don't know anything else about epidemiology, you get that much. But the folks of 1847 don't just not get that it's a virus responsible for the cold. They don't understand that there's a cold. The idea that there was a disease that spread from person to person was totally foreign. All disease was personal, the result of some intimate and idiosyncratic set of factors unique to the infected. To the physicians of Semmelweis's time, you and Larry and Betsy and Miss Arnold and the mary had a little lamb recorder crew don't have the same cold. You each have your own colds. Sure, there might be something in the air exciting each of you to have a similar disease, but whatever that is, it's just a catalyst, a signal it's not the sickness itself. So Zemmelweiss's results made no sense at all. While his theory was loose, the basic proposal was that there was some singular disease particle that was spreading from one person to the next, and that was ridiculous. Impossible. The only substances that could so affect one's health were poisons, but poisons couldn't spread from person to person. How could a poison redouble and multiply in one victim and then go forth and do likewise with the next and the next? Semmelweis didn't know. All he knew was that washing your hands kept you from getting people sick. But that wasn't good enough for the medical establishment. So they rejected it, out of hand. In Vienna's Clinic One, hand-washing remained the norm. But that was it. Everywhere else, the norm was instead...
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The medical establishment didn't merely reject Semmelweis's conclusion. It tried to sink him. I mean, it wasn't a concerted effort. There was no conspiracy. But functionally, Semmelweis was in for a bombardment of ruin. In 1849, he lost his job at Clinic One. He was replaced by his nemesis, Karl Braun, who published a refutation of Semmelweis that named not one, not two, not three, or four, but 29 causes of puerperal fever. Semmelweis tried to get a position as a medical lecturer within the city of Vienna, but he faced some belittling opposition and eventually fled Vienna in anger, without so much as telling his friends goodbye. He returned to his hometown of Pest, as in the latter half of Budapest and in 1851 took an unpaid position in the obstetric ward of a small hospital there. It was a very humble position, but Semmelweis still managed to make the most of it. He quickly eliminated childbed fever from his new stomping grounds, with the same hand-washing routine as he had instituted in Vienna. But the doctors of Pest were as antagonistic to him as the others had been. He had a little bit of luck when the head of obstetrics at the University of Pest died in 1854. That head had been among the many, many people who thought Semmelweis was full of it, and Semmelweis hadn't been shy about making his feelings about that known. In fact, while there are plenty of reasons to blame the establishment for dismissing his results, some of that blame has to go to the man himself. Not only did Semmelweis refuse to publish his findings, but he was also notoriously bristly. He was loud and outspoken, venting his frustrations with those who failed to listen to him in angry, insulting terms. So when Semmelweis applied to fill the vacant position at Pest, it was seen as a laughable long shot, especially since Karl Braun, who had taken over at Clinic One five years before, also threw his hat in the ring. The university quickly settled on Braun, but the city overruled that decision, because Braun didn't speak Hungarian, and brought in Semmelweis instead. When Semmelweis took his seat at the University of Pest, he did exactly what you'd expect. He instituted hand-washing procedures for all doctors, nurses, and medical students. And equally as predictable, rates of childbed fever diminished. That was three hospitals of data now that supported Semmelweis's conclusion. But still, the powers that be scoffed. What did he have to do to get his due? How could so many physicians remain so hard-headed in the face of so much unnecessary death? In 1861, Semmelweis did what he thought he had to. He published. His book was dense with data. Tables, charts, and numbers that established irrefutably that hand-washing saved lives. The mountain of evidence was insurmountable. And again, the medical community balked. It was too dependent on numbers, too concerned with statistics. Medical treaties of the day were more philosophical in demeanor, so Semmelweis's was taken as workmanlike, pedestrian, overcompensating. And it didn't help that between all those facts and figures were more personal attacks on the very establishment he was trying to reach. He called out a couple of famous physicians by name, calling them murderers and ignoramuses. You might think spitting in the faces of people so locked in ignorance and vanity that they were allowing thousands of women to die is an understandable, if not particularly effective, tack. And you'd be right, sure. But starting around the time the book came out in 1861, Semmelweis's attitude took a turn. Every conversation, be it with friends, colleagues, or even his wife, would turn into a blind rage. All small talk was redirected towards childbed fever. He began to withdraw from his family drinking heavily, holding up with prostitutes. Those few friends he had began to turn away from him. He was becoming buried in obscurity and ruin. Just what it is that was happening to Semmelweis in the 1860s is an open historical question. Some have argued that he was taken by Alzheimer's, others that his erratic behavior was a sign of late-stage syphilis, Syphilis, after all, was a common hazard of the job for obstetricians. As you've probably gathered by now, the people of the mid-19th century didn't know the first thing about how to prevent the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Even Semmelweis's hand-washing couldn't solve that problem. And most of Semmelweis's practice was in free clinics for the poor, which meant treating a lot of prostitutes. The dangers of their jobs became the dangers of his job. Yet there's another plausible explanation for Semmelweis's behavior and that is that it was the natural result of fighting obsessively and fruitlessly to change a world that resisted adamantly. Perhaps there was nothing pathological about Semmelweis' behavior at all. Perhaps screaming, fire, fire, ever louder to an audience that insists on continuing to watch the movie while the screen burns is an entirely rational action. Regardless, the few friends that remained in his company eventually decided they had to do something. On July 30th, 1865, Dr. Ferdinand Ritter von Hebra invited Semmelweis to visit his new sanitarium, just to take a look, see what he was doing. Once there, Semmelweis sensed the trick coming and tried to make a run for the exit. He was grabbed by a group of guards who beat him severely, restrained him in a straitjacket, isolated him in a cell, and fed him a raft of diuretics. Two weeks later, he succumbed to his wounds. Sepsis internal infection the very phenomenon he'd spent his life combating took it on august 13th 1865. only a handful of friends and family bothered to attend his funeral his death barely made the obit section his discovery remained as obscure as him until 20 years later when louis pasteur and joseph lister made their discoveries of germ theory and antiseptics but Semmelweis was so obscure that few people seem to have connected these new conclusions back to him. It was only in the mid-20th century that people began to recognize the good that Semmelweis had done and tried to do. The University of Budapest Medical School was renamed in 1969 as Semmelweis University. What once was Clinic One in Vienna is now the Semmelweis Clinic. The man himself has gained some names too. Father of antiseptic, savior of women angel of mothers. His story is taught to medical students the world over, a reminder of the values of empiricism and the perils of orthodoxy. And in the 1970s, doctors Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary, whom we'll probably be talking about sometime in the future, so don't spoil it for yourself, examined the resistance so often encountered in science. Ideally, the scientific process is meant to be objective, dispassionate, responsive to fact. But in practice, it's seldom so simple. New ideas are regularly rebuffed and rebuked. Thomas Kuhn, in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, chalked this up to what he called incommensurability, the way an old paradigm lacks the imagination and language to grasp its replacement. But Wilson and Leary gave this phenomenon a different name. The Semmelweis reflex. From that toddling town, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.